reading from the letter to the Hebrews. Therefore, brothers and sisters, holy partners in heavenly calling, consider that Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Yet Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that would be spoken later. Christ, however, was faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if we hold firm to the confidence and the pride that belong to hope. The word of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. As we continue through Hebrews this evening, I'd like to move through some key ideas in our text and then take a step back to try to see the golden thread that I think ties a lot of these ideas together. We need to remind ourselves Hebrews was written to a group of Christians who were living in an undertow. There was a cultural current that was pulling them back to their old way of life under the old covenant into the comfortable familiarity of the law of Moses. And our author is going through a series of ways in which Jesus is far superior to anything in the Old Covenant as a way of trying to help these fledgling communities hold on to their faith and their hope in Christ. In this particular section, we are to see how Jesus is superior to Moses himself. And that is quite the thing. After all, Moses is the prophet of Israel. Moses is the lawgiver. Moses is the one who defied Pharaoh and led God's people out of Egypt. Moses is the one who spoke with God at the burning bush. Moses is the one who saw the light of God's presence, the one who spoke with him as one speaks to a friend. Moses had to veil his face because the brightness of God's glory was reflected there so brightly. And yet, our text tells us it's as if Moses is a small section of the dining room wall, and Jesus is Frank Lloyd Wright. Moses makes up a part of the household, but Jesus, God the Son, is the designer and builder of the entire thing. Now, the house of God has multiple references. This is an idea that has been talked about throughout the Christian scriptures. There's Israel, the temple, the ecclesia, where the church gathers, and the word itself. All of these things can be referred to as the house of God. And for Moses to be referred to as a faithful servant in that house is an incredible honor. Again, Moses represents all of the glory of the Old Covenant. But what we're supposed to see is that it cannot compare being in the house as a servant with being in the house as a son. In Moses, God had a messenger to convey his will to his people etched in stone, a covenant that would remain always frustratingly exterior. But in Christ, God has made for himself a mouth, lungs, vocal cords. The word took on flesh to reveal the mind of God to us, not through the work of another, 
but through the unveiling of himself in human flesh. Moses was faithful like a good head butler, and yet even he did not attain the promised land. Christ's faithfulness likewise has the posture of a servant. After all, what kind of son would take on the lowly, humiliating work of dying for his subjects? But his faithfulness also has the authority of sonship, of an heir. It is qualitatively a difference between the architect and builder and the sheetrock that he uses. This is the only place in the New Testament that Christ is referred to as an apostle, though Christ himself uses the concept of apostolicity to describe his own self-identity throughout the Gospels. To be an apostle is to be a sent one, and Christ is the sent one. He is the apostle from whom all apostleship springs. Christ is also the high priest, the one in whom all priesthood is rooted. In this way, Christ is the icon of a bishop. He is both sent forth to declare the arrival of God's kingdom, and he does the priestly work of sacrifice and offering, still interceding for his people at the throne of God, where his blood still speaks a better word. And I think one of the things that the author is wanting us to recognize in delineating these things for us is that the faithfulness with which Jesus executes his duties as a son should give us faith and hope when we see that he did not waver in his obedience toward his father but faithfully went about the work he was sent to accomplish undergoing unspeakable suffering in the process we should be alive with faith that the things he has said he will do for us he is indeed doing and will bring to completion our high priest is the embodiment of faithfulness he will never go back on any of his promises, but will fulfill all that he has set out to do. All we need to do is look at the way Christ remained faithful to his Father and recognize how it is that he will remain faithful to us. Christ is the truest of friends. He is the closest of brothers, the greatest of servants. He is the Son who has been given the entire world as his inheritance, and who will share his riches with the poor and lonely. When we see that Christ did not flee the garden, but submitted himself even unto death, we should understand that his faithfulness in completing the work that he began in us is such that he will bring it to fulfillment. He will not shrink back. He has not let anything hold him back already. This text is calling us to place our hope that Christ really is as faithful as he says he is. But there's also a challenge embedded in this text for us. If Christ is faithful in God's house as a son, then when he speaks, he speaks with the authority of a master. Likewise, if Christ is the architect and builder of the house, the church of God that is being built into a spiritual temple, it is us who should conform to him not the other way around. He has a design for his church. We need to get on board with his design. It's like Jeremiah 18, when the prophet is told to go and observe the potter at his work. 
We're told that the vessel that he was making of the clay was spoiled in the potter's hands, and so he reworked it into another vessel as seemed good to the potter to do. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and said, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as the potter has done? Behold, like clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. The church is Christ's body, and the mind of the Spirit has been spoken through the Catholic wholeness tradition of the church. Now, it probably won't surprise you that I get asked a lot of questions about what we believe and practice as a church. Guess what the two big ones are? Always gender and sexuality issues, because those are our current cultural obsessions. And so I get asked a lot about what our church's position on these things are. I get asked a lot about the ritual of the liturgy and the various strangenesses in the creeds and the dogmas of the church. I mean, even just last week, our gospel text had some of the most difficult words to hear on divorce and remarriage. And it's not that these are not good or important questions to ask or questions that our culture is wrestling through, but often there's this underlying assumption when I get asked these questions that I, as the pastor of the community, get to make my own decisions, that I get to fudge what might be too difficult for us to take in. But when we recognize that I am at best the baseboard molding in the spare bedroom closet, we see how ludicrous it would be for me to go about picking and choosing which of the things that Christ has delivered to his church we should uphold. We have been given the deposit of faith in which the apostolic message regarding the crucified and risen Christ has been articulated in the scripture, in the creeds of the church, and expressed in the cultic ritual of the liturgy. When we say that we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we're saying that the church is one because Christ is one Lord, which means that we should lament and be scandalized by the divisions in the church. We're saying that the church is holy. She is called and set apart by God for his purposes. We're going to circle back to that one in a minute. The church is called and set apart by God for his purposes, not set up according to our own constitution. We're saying that the church is Catholic, meaning that it contains the very fullness of Christ, the infinite mystery of his person. And we're saying that the church is apostolic and that it rests in the authority and mission of the apostle himself, Jesus Christ. And what the early church fathers taught is that the church across all space and time is this, holy, called out by God, Catholic, containing the fullness of Christ's mystery, and apostolic, resting in his authority and setness. The whole church is this across time and space, and also the local church is this in microcosm. We are not a slice of the pie, right? We're like a mini hand pie. We're the whole thing, just in miniature, which means that we don't get to choose. Again, I'll remind you, the root word of heresy means to choose. We don't get to choose which parts of the Catholic fullness of Christ we are going to be immersed in and express in the liturgy because we are his house. We are built according to his design and specifications with Christ himself as our cornerstone, meaning he is the one by which all other stones are measured and put in place 
so that the building may have integrity and stand. Now, I want to return to the beginning so that we can trace this golden thread that weaves through this text, both showing us Christ's faithfulness and challenging us to submit ourselves to his lordship. Because indeed, it's a thread that weaves through the entire life of the church. Our text begins, Therefore, brothers and sisters, holy partners in a heavenly calling. And then it ends almost like with a bookend, with the statement that we are his house if we hold firm to the confidence and pride that belong to hope. Holy partners in a heavenly calling. If you have been baptized, this describes you. In the water of baptism, you have been washed with regeneration and then set apart as holy, meaning you have been designated by God for a specific purpose. You have been marked with the sphragus and chrism by the Spirit, and therefore you have been given a vocation, a purpose, a raison d'etre, a reason for being. And the vocation that you have been given, it's not Postmates, right? It's not meal delivery that's already been made. You're not getting hot takeout delivered to you. You're getting Blue Apron. You have been given everything you need to make the meal, but you have been called as a holy partner, someone who works alongside God. He'll provide the gas and the heat and the chicken and the potatoes, but he wants you to get into the kitchen with him. Which is to say, you have been given a terrible freedom. It is entirely possible to resist God's call on your life to the point of apostasy. I mean, this section of Hebrews is basically a sustained reflection on Psalm 95, which the Anglican Church says in morning prayer each day, only we don't normally say it all the way to the end. You know the psalm I mean? Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout for joy to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and raise a loud shout to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the caverns of the earth and the heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his for he made it and his hands have molded the dry land. Come, let us bow down and bend the knee and kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Oh, that today you would hearken to his voice. And the section that we add in Lent says, Harden not your hearts as your forebears did in the wilderness at Meribah, and on that day at Massah when they tempted me. They put me to the test, though they had seen my works. Forty years long I detested that generation and said, this people are wayward in their hearts. They do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. I say again, you have been given a terrible freedom. As St. Benedict wrote in reflecting upon this psalm, he said, let us open our eyes to the deifying light. Let us hear with awestruck ears the warning which the divine voice cries daily to us. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And again, whoever has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And what does he say? 
Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Run while you have the light of life, lest the darkness of death overtake you. You have been called by God to be holy partners in a heavenly calling, set apart for the future world that is to come. The point of Psalm 95, and indeed the point of what the author of Hebrews is doing, is not to get us to start obsessing over ourselves. The point is for us to fix our eyes upon Christ, to bow down and bend the knee and hearken to his voice. You need never fear that he has somehow fled you, for in him you live and move and have your being. He speaks, and we must listen. He calls. We must respond with faith. He is crowned with honor and glory. We must worship. He is king over all the worlds. It is in him that we hope. He is our confidence and our boast. To say that he has called you to partner with him is not to diminish his glory. It is all his work. It is all his grace. To him belongs all glory and honor and praise. As you enter the church through baptism and are constituted as Christ's body around the Eucharist altar, you are being built up into the house of God, the place where his glory will one day fully dwell. You will be knit into the fabric of the New Jerusalem, a city that has no sun, for the glory of God gives its light, and the lamp, the lamb is its lamp. In the words of St. Ambrose of Milan, I say to you, let your door stand open to receive him. Unlock your soul to him. Offer him a welcome in your mind, and then you will see the riches of simplicity, the treasures of peace, the joy of grace. Throw wide the gate of your heart. Stand before the sun of the everlasting light. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.